today what we're doing is we're doing just a, a large overview of the entire book of Ephesians. So we're going to be Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4, uh, kind of in and out of some of those texts. And then for the next few weeks, we're going to be camping out in the book of Ephesians as we continue on with this idea of community. And so let me kind of catch you up if you've not been here where we've been. Uh, two weeks ago, we opened up this idea of what is community? What does God desire out of community? How does Jesus view community? And we said that Jesus views community, his community in particular, as this radical new way of life. That you would give up your old way of life, you would join in with what he's entailed, that your old family would be put aside, that his new community would become your new family. And this was just this radical way of teaching. It's no longer about the individual, it's not about me, it's about us together. And then last week we went back and said, well, why, why is this the case? Why is this the way God wants it? And we said, that answer is found in knowing who God is in himself. That God is, within his own DNA, an eternal community of love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That before any of this ever began, God existed for all of eternity. And I know that kind of makes your eyes cross a little bit. It does mine at least. But God existed for all of eternity in a perfect loving relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what God then did is he created man in his image, which means then if we follow that logically out, we were created as well to need a loving community. So the first step of that is God coming to bring you into his own personal community through salvation of the cross. But then right after that, God's next very invitation is to say, not only do I want you to live in community with me, but I want you to live in community with one another. And we said that the four truths of God's community, starting with the Trinity and then following to us as the church, is full equality, glad submission, joyful intimacy, and mutual difference. So my original intent was to do two of those at a time, but as I was studying this week, I thought, you know, I think we need to break these down a little bit more. So today, we're just talking about this idea of the church as a community of full equality. This is what we're going to be getting into. Full equality is, is a weird thing in the modern kind of Western viewpoint, in my opinion, because instilled into uh, our own declaration of independence, right, is the opening phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. That's, that's instilled into our community, into our culture, into our country. Now, there's always a place to go off and talk about the side of that was written while slavery still existed, and what does that all mean? And, but even so, we have in our own declaration of independence that there is this innate belief within our culture that man is created equal. The problem with that comes that, that deep down we know that that's a truth and we want to believe that truth and, and we want to grant every person we encounter equal dignity and value. But there's always this thing in the back of our minds that tells us to separate ourselves from others and devalue other people and value ourselves. And for example... I, uh, I, I would never be a type of person that like, considers myself a gym rat, if you know what a gym rat is. But Haley and I uh, try to go to the gym pr pretty often. We try to go about four days a week or so. 
Um, but part of like not wanting to identify with that like culture of gym rat, whatever that is, is, is I try to be the type of person that when I see someone in, in the gym, I always want to be personable, I want to be kind, I want to be positive, I want to be welcoming to them. Because the gym's an intimidating place. If you've never been to a gym before, you go in, there's all this equipment, you don't know how to use it. It's a little bit intimidating. I get it. I've been there. So I always want to be open to those types of people and help them to the best of my abilities. But every so often, every so often, there's always that person that I just think probably needs to be trained before they get set loose in the gym universe. Like, they just need need a little bit of training before they get there. So when Haley and I lived in Socorro, uh, we went and worked out uh, most of the time at the New Mexico Tech gym. So their, their weightlifting gym was underneath in the basement of their basketball gym. So you had to go down all these stairs, and we would go and work out. And I'll never forget, as we were working out this one kind of stint of time, there was this guy that came about the same time we are, we did, and he always wore sunglasses in a basement of a gym. And I remember the first time seeing that and being like, that's kind of weird, but maybe, I don't know, like maybe he had LASIK, or maybe he did some sort of eye surgery, so we'll, we'll give him credit. But it, a couple weeks went by, and I would still run into him, and he'd still be wearing those sunglasses. And at that point, like, this kind of weight sets in the back of your mind that you just want to start watching this guy. Like, what, is, what is he doing? Why is he wearing sunglasses? And I would watch, and I'd find myself growing, like, hypercritical of everything this guy did. Like, his form is terrible. He wears sunglasses. Why does he only do bench press? He wears sunglasses. Like, and if I could just, like, be honest with you, like, that sin kind of sets in a little bit. And I start looking at this guy feeling like as if maybe he's just a little bit less than me. Maybe he just doesn't really understand the way things I understand. Maybe he just doesn't have the gym knowledge and etiquette like I do. Maybe he just doesn't know these things. And so I just was finding myself watching and critiquing this. And it's almost as if like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are like, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't see sunglasses, bad form guy lifting weights today, so... You would have changed your mind if you saw that, Ben, I, I really think so. Then one day, we're, uh, Haley and I are working out, and we're doing bench press on the Smith machine. If you don't know, Smith machine is a bench press on rails. It's made to where you can't tip over, um, and so I'm, I'm bench pressing. Uh, we get to our last set. Haley does hers. She goes to the other room to start working out on another thing, and I think, man, I just got my last set really well. I'm going to add some weight on it and try again. So I add some weight. I go to do my bench press, and I go down, and I push and the weight does not move. And it's not like I can tip over, it's just misery, so I'm, I'm stuck. And you get this like moment of panic that you're stuck and you're, you're fretting. And I'm looking around, trying to find where Haley went because she left the room I was in. And so like, I'm starting to panic. I, I cannot get this weight off of my chest. And all of a sudden, someone walks through the doorway. Would you like to know who walks through the doorway? You know exactly who walks through the doorway. I wish I could make stories like this up in my life, man. Sunglasses, walks through the doorway. And he looks over at me, and we make, I guess we make eye contact. I couldn't tell. He's wearing sunglasses. But uh, he, he walks over to me, and he picks it up. He's like, you okay, man? And everything I thought just comes crashing down. Have you had encounters like that? You build these perceptions and these things that you think you know best, and it's always against this person, and you're superior, and they're inferior. And you build your pride, and like in the biblical sense, right after pride comes the fall. And like this is the pattern that we deal with as humanity. We build pride, and it seems like this is a historical trope of mankind stretching deep into our roots. 
But is that the original blueprint of God's intent? That you just inflate your own ego and your own superiority complex and you build it up until it pops and everything comes crashing down. And so you get embarrassed and you start restarting the process all over again. Or or is there something more genuine? Is there something more sincere to how we relate to one another and how we relate to those people around us? Something that truly makes, in the eyes of God, full equality. And it's with that question in mind that I want to take you to the book of Ephesians. And let's just do this. Since we're doing kind of an overview, I'm just going to kick in, read some passages. Um, So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. We'll make some points Uh, And then I'll keep moving down, and then we'll get to this. Does that sound good to you guys? But here's our starting point. Is there a more sincere way of community than this pattern of building up superiority only to have it collapse underneath us over and over again? Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. And already, I want to stop and make a little point here. Your Bible probably has a footnote beside that word at Ephesus. Does your Bible have a footnote there? Okay, good deal. If you follow that footnote down, footnotes are really cool, uh, it will probably read something along the lines of earlier manuscripts omit at Ephesus. Does your Bible say that? Why? Why does it say that? Does that mean your Bible's messed up? Does that mean there's something broken about it in early? Here's what's going on. The book of Ephesians is a really interesting letter of Paul's because it doesn't exactly read like a lot of other of Paul's letters. Most of Paul's letters, he'll give a very direct introduction. And then especially when you get to the end of his letter, he's going to say stuff like, hey, tell Aquila and Priscilla I said hi. Tell Timothy that I think he's really cool. Paul will say stuff like that. I don't know about the really cool part. But, you know, Paul will come in and say, tell this person I said hello. When you get to the end of Ephesians, you don't find anything like that. Ephesians is far more generic. It's not talking about any particular church problem. It's not answering any particular church question. It's not saying hi to any particular person within a church. And we found manuscripts that date back that the more original, the older manuscript, actually doesn't have this phrase in Ephesus in it. So what's going on with all of this? And here's what I want you to understand through this. Likeliness is, and most uh, biblical scholars will affirm this, when Paul writes this letter, it's not just to the church in Ephesus. Paul is writing a far more generic letter, and he's just, he's writing from prison, and he's shipping this out to any church he can get it to because he thinks there's something universal that needs to be said about church community, something that this would go to every single church that would take it, and the most predominant of these letters got written to the church at Ephesus, so a church would get it, they would copy it, and they were going to send it on. If they were going to address it, they would add into this phrase right here, at Ephesus. So the majority of our copies at least read at Ephesus, but here's what I want you to understand from all of that. Paul is writing just as much to First Baptist Portalis in this as he is writing to Ephesus. He wants us to understand these exact same premises that he wants the Ephesians to understand. And really he wants the entire universal church to understand 2,000 years ago. And so Paul's going to break this whole book down to talk about what a church community is supposed to look like. So if you jump down to chapter, or, or chapter 1, verse 3, God's gonna, or Paul's going to give this long, flowing sermon, a uh, poem kind of sermon. And uh, from that poem, the heart of it is in verse 9. Let me read those to you, verse 9 and 10. 
It says this, He, Jesus, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in the heavens and on the earth in him. So what Jesus is saying is that this man we call Jesus, his whole purpose, who he was, what he did, is to take all of creation and bring it all to a singular point. To, to, to bring everything together, to sum it all up. If you could say it differently, you might say something like, the history of the universe all came to a point where it was recreated and made one through this man named Jesus. Now we're in church it's a very normal thing to say in church. None of you are like, okay, that's, that's not crazy. But take that premise and apply it to the guy you meet at Walmart. Right? I met this guy at Walmart the other day. I'm just telling you, I think the entire history of the world led up to like be made in him. That's crazy that, that you don't make statements like that. And Paul's saying, this guy named Jesus, everything in the universe from the history of mankind has all been funneled into one through him. His point stands as the point where the world changed. His existence made everything one. But behind that statement is this question. Why would everything need to be brought back into one? Why would everything need to be wrapped back up together and brought to a singular one unified state. And Paul's statement carries this assumption that before Jesus came, the world was broken. Before Jesus, the world was fragmented. And, and how did this happen? Great question. Chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of this air and of the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under the wrath as others were also. Paul's saying there was a point before Jesus when this whole thing was broken. You were once dead. You were once sinful. You were once trespassers. You were once disobedient. You were once following your own fleshly desires. So what Paul's doing is he's creating this, this story, this timeline for us to understand. By the way, let me start here. I didn't come up with this. I stole this. I mentioned him last week, but again, Dr. Tim Mackey um, is a Hebrew Bible scholar. He heads up the Bible Project, so I stole this from him. So credit where credit's due. But I think it's a good way of understanding this story of what God's telling. The story that Paul is assuming. So Paul begins with creation. And right at the beginning of this creation, as God creates Adam and Eve, Jesus, God creates humanity. And when God creates humanity or God starts creation, um, is it good or bad? It is good. Things, things are joyful and great. God creates, oh, I'm getting stuck here. God creates humanity in the joys of his ways and the perfection of Eden. And it stays like this way forever, and we all get to experience it, right? No, that's Genesis 1 and 2. What happens in Genesis 3? There's this thing we call the fall. That Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they sin and they fall from God's intention of perfection. And then the Bible's going to go on to tell story after story of the implications of this fall. 
And one of the things that the Bible is going to tell us is that what happens to humanity is that we begin to fragment. We build this idea from the fall that I want what's mine, and so I'm going to break away from you if it means that I can get the pursuit of mine. And so we begin to divide and we begin to try to conquer. We build our tribes, we build our towns, we build our cultures, we build everything in this idea of me versus you because I need to compete with you for these resources. And if that's a personal level or a communal level or whatever it looks like, the world at the moment of the fall begins to just fragment and fragment. In fact, the very first fragmentation happens between two brothers who, what does Cain do to Abel? He kills him. This fragmentation takes deep roots and sets in right from the get-go. So the innate nature of sin is to turn us inward, meaning that my key focus will always be on who? Me. I will always focus me. In fact, if I could, I would take this and draw eight billion little lines because every single human on the planet stuck in their sin is like this. I'm focusing me and mine and whatever it takes to get to it. Is this God's intention for the world? No, this was never God's intention for the world. But this is Paul's way of saying in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what it means to be dead. This is not God's intention for life, and the opposite of that life is death. That it happens through transgressions, which is this idea of, of knowing what is morally wrong and then doing it anyways. So, so this idea of, I know it's wrong, I know it's violating that other person, I, I know that it's not something I should do, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyways, transgression. Or through sin, which is kind of more along the lines of not living up to who God created me to be, defying my identity of God's creation. And the results of that is death. And, and the question is, how do we fix this? And here's the, here's the thing. Every culture in the world outside of God is trying to solve this problem. Politics is trying to solve this problem. Different uh, technologies are trying to solve this problem. The whole birth of the internet was like, we're going to solve this problem. And then the only thing we did is make it worse. We keep coming in with our own human inventions to try to fix this fragmentation. And what does it do? Just fragments us even more. We just find more ways to be broken and more ways to divide and more ways to conquer and more ways to elevate ourselves. There is no human fix, and the results of this, according to the Bible, is death. It doesn't matter how technologically we advance. It doesn't matter how educated we become. The sin nature of man will always fragment us out. And was this God's desire for his creation? This was never God's desire for his creation. God created humanity good, and it's sin that begins to fragment and break it all down. So God just leaves it this way, right? Absolutely not. If you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to go on and he's going to say, in the most key words that I'm sure you've heard this said before, 1 through 3 is we're broken, we were all like this, we've all been trapped in this lifestyle of fragmentation, and then he drops to chapter, four, or chapter 2 verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in 
Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might be displayed with the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith that is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works that no man may boast. We were created for his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. See, the story of the Bible is going to continue on, that what God wants to do is God wants to give restoration. God wants to take all of these different stories, and he wants to bring it back in to his one unified story. He wants to restore our fragmented world into his perfect unity, his own restoration. See, out of the mess, out of this, God chooses one family. Starts with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God takes and makes this covenant with, with all of them, really, but with Jacob. In doing so, he changes Jacob's name to Israel. And with Israel, God's going to set up this covenant that one day he would once again bless the world. And as God makes this covenant with Israel, is it because Israel is morally superior to these other stories? Have you read the Old Testament? No. Go read the story in Judges of like Samson. I love in modern kind of Bible terms, we take Samson like Samson was a really big strong man with long hair. Samson was horrible. He's just downright broken left and right. And it's the story of how it's not Samson's salvation that comes. It's God's faithfulness to Samson. So God chooses to be faithful to this very story by calling out Israel. And then God is going to bring from this nation a Messiah, a new king. It's one to bring restoration into the world. See, here's what makes this significant. Jesus never intended to be just the Jewish Messiah. He came to be the Messiah for who? Every single of the eight billion stories that are on this fragmentation list. Jesus came to be the Messiah for all of that, to be the one human who lived his entire life in the original design right here and then took that perfection and gave it up for fragmented humanity. So that what? Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 that he might sum up everything back into one, that he might recreate everything back into one, that he may restore. It's in Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection, that Jesus absorbs the fragmentation of the sins of humanity and puts it on his shoulder. So then we get Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Paul's idea is, if you're over here, which by the way, we all start life over here, then you are welcome to take your story, submit it into this story, and by faith, grab on to what Jesus has done on the cross. And God, in fact, wants you to take your story, submit it into his story, deny yourself and your own abilities and capabilities, and bring it back to Jesus. And that when we do that, we become, in the words of this passage and in the words of the Bible, in Christoi, or Greek, in Christ. And that's churchy language that we use a lot. You know, when I'm writing a letter to somebody, if it's like from the church, I'll usually, in Christ, Pastor Philip. But that term, in Christ, is, is significant. 
What it means is at its root cause is that when you are in Christ, what is true about Jesus becomes true about you. Who Jesus is becomes how you currently are. His life becomes your life. His death becomes the death to your sins. His resurrection becomes your new humanity. And who gets to experience this? Chapter 2, verse 11. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. He's saying, look, at one time there was all this fragmentation between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And at that time, verse 12, you were without Christ. So you were not in Christ, you were out of Christ. Excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners of the covenant of the promise, without hope and without the world. Then he gives the classic, but now in Christ... You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I love this because in verse 14, Paul changes the pronouns. And he's not going to say you, you, you. He changes it now to our. So he says, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of this no effect of the law, consisting of the commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new humanity from the two, resulting in peace. Here's what I want you to see from this. Jesus brings restoration, but not only does he bring just restoration to God, he brings restoration to this idea that we call full equality. And I know my handwriting is trash, but you can read it on the thing where it's... A Computer text, and it looks a lot more legible that way. That Jesus restores us to full equality so that anyone who would by faith submit their story to the story of the cross would be reconciled, would be restored to God's original design and created back to this idea of fully equal so that they might become what Paul's going to later call a new humanity. That they would become new humans. That creation would come back to this singular point. That this new life and this new humanity is no longer about pecking order. It's not about power dynamics. Uh, It's not about who gets to control what. It isn't concerned with education or economics or nationality. It's not concerned with who wears sunglasses to the gyms, even when the gym is in a basement. None of that is what's relevant to this new humanity. Now, does that mean that, you know, hey, Philip, you said we're all fully equal. Next Sunday, you can just show up to church and be like, Philip, we're all equal. You're not preaching today. I'm going to preach today. No, there's still this idea called glad submission. We'll talk about that next week, this concept of order. But for now, what I want you to understand is in this new humanity, in this new community, the defining factor for each and every person who has been fragmented out by the very sins they've committed is that they would come back into one. That they would be fully equal in Christ. This new humanity is unconcerned with the power dynamics of the sinful and fragmented old self. There's a story in Matthew chapter 20. This is a really interesting story. Uh, James and John, who are two of Jesus' disciples, they get their mom to go to Jesus. And so James and John's mom goes up to Jesus, and she just falls to her knees before Jesus. And she says, say that my two sons may sit at your right hand and your left hand side when you're king. So remember, this probably, she's seeing Jesus as this, like, 
uh, militant leader that's going to come in, overthrow the Roman government, establish his king uh, and his throne within the temple. And so she's thinking, like, whenever you do that, Jesus, put James and John, like, right there. Make them the most important, okay? And so it goes on a little bit, and it says that when the other disciples find, found out about this, they were indignant. That's, that's Bible for they're ticked off. They're like, what are you doing, James and John? Not only did you go to Jesus behind our back to try to get power over us, like, you had your mom do it. How low is that? And there's all this division and all this fragmentation and all this stuff that's going on because they're trying to grasp at power. And Jesus calls them all together. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 28, he tells them this. You know how the kings of the nations show their power to the people? Important leaders use their power over the people? It must not be this way with you. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you let him care for those around you. Whoever wants to be the first among you, let him be your servant. For the Son of Man came not to be cared for. He came to care for others. He came to give his life so that many could be bought by his blood and made free from the punishment of sin. Jesus' community is a new humanity totally unlike the fragmented world outside of it. It's a new humanity where everyone is brought equal to the foot of the cross. And I point all of this out. I got a picture up here. So uh, the North American Mission Board did this a couple years ago. It's kind of their standard way of doing uh, gospel presentations to people. It's a great model, absolutely fantastic model. It's called the three circles. So you start drawing up God's design. God created us. Same thing. God created us perfect. Everything was good. But sin enters the world, and sin leads to brokenness. And what God wants you to do is he sent Jesus to redeem you. So if you would repent and believe, you can be saved and return to God's original design. It's a great story, and I think it's a good representation. The problem is when we leave the gospel at just this, we declare the gospel as this kind of individual, private type thing where, hey, your relationship with God is something that you need to make a decision on, and that's what it is. Jesus came to save you. But if we limit the gospel to the individual you, we always fall short of Jesus' plan for his new community. And we end up focusing on the things of me. And what we do is we take this fragmented model and we just duplicate it into the new humanity. So we're living over in the new humanity, but we're just as fragmented because we take things like church and we turn it inwardly. I don't want to go to church there. Their music just isn't for me. Or they leave church that day, and like, I just didn't get anything out of church that day. It's, I, I didn't get what I wanted out of church today. And I think if Paul heard that, he would come to you and say, maybe the point of church is not just that you get something out of it, but that you're giving something into it, because the gospel is not just you and God, it's us together with God. There is a communal focus to this thing we call the gospel. And yes, it absolutely starts to your restoration to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit through the cross of Christ by placing your faith in that reality. That's so true. But the Bible never envisions a world where you do that and then step right out of the church and say, ah, but I'm going to do stuff on my own. I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't need the church. Instead, the Bible envisions that we would all step into this new humanity and start doing life together. See, in this model, in this model, what the next step is, is that we start saying, what does it mean to live in the new humanity? And lucky for you, this is exactly what Paul talks about in chapter 4. We're almost done. Let me point out a few more key things with all of this. 
Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul has just finished giving all of this story about how you can be saved at the cross. And then he's going to transfer over to what it means now in the new humanity. So he's going to say, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling that you have received. Hey, I urge you to live like this new humanity is the new reality for you. It's not about following rules. It's not about just doing all the things that repress and hold you down. It's about submitting yourself to this new humanity and taking on the new identity of what it means to be in Christ. And he's going to go on to say, and to do this, verse 2, you have to do it with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So, so there's all these things that Paul's going to use to define what this new humanity looked like, but the very first thing he wants you to see is that this new humanity has unity. It's unified. It's together. That while the rest of the world in their sin is fragmented out, the new humanity is unified with one another. Now, does Paul expect that to be easy? No, look at what he says. In order to do this, what are you going to need? Verse 2, you're going to need humility. You're going to need gentleness. You're going to need patience. You're going to need to bear with one another in love. What he's saying with that is this is going to take work. That the new humanity is here, but we're still struggling with the fragmentation of sin within our lives. So in order to see this transpire out, you've got to have humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. But the invitation still stands, come live in this new unity. And he goes through in verse 4, and he expounds further. He says, there is one body unified, one spirit unified, just as you were called to one unified hope at your calling, one unified Lord, one unified faith, one unified baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Jesus is coming in, or Paul's coming in, and he's saying, look, at the cross you have full restoration to full equality where all of this is made into one one hope, one Lord, one God, one forgiveness, one salvation, one new humanity, all unified because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we don't have time to get into these other ones today, but we'll talk about this as time goes on. But Paul's going to go on to talk about how not only is this new humanity a humanity of unity, it's a humanity of holiness. That it's holy, meaning that it's set apart. That the way this person does life is drastically different than the way this person does life. And it's not about putting a bunch of rules on you. It's that you have this new identity that you get to live in over here. It's totally different. And so he's going to go on. He's going to contrast. He's going to say, hey, people over here, they lie. But the new human tells the truth. These people over here, they cheat and they steal. But, but the person over here, they work for their thing. And he's going to bounce back and forth on this, on this holiness idea. And then he's going to go on and wrap all of this up in chapter 5, verse 1, and he's going to say, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering. So not only is it unified, not only is this new humanity holy, but this new humanity is all about love. And not this worldly idea of just emotional highs of I'm for you, but this love of giving myself over. Because the definition of love right here in chapter 1 is that Jesus loved us and did what? And gave himself. That this new humanity is just giving itself for one another back and forth, left and right, living into this whole point. And that we would do this 
until God wraps up this timeline or brings us into eternity. Where eternity will look just like God created it to look at the beginning. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of community. This is the story of what God wants us to do. And the whole point of that diagram, the whole point of doing this, is that I want you to be able to look at that and to radically change how you see yourself. That you would see that before Jesus, every ounce of our sinful, fragmented self is everything we can do to gain more about ourselves, more power, more resources, more influence, more popularity, more control, but it's all about me and it only fragments. You see, us and our sin will always try to put ourselves as king. But Jesus, Paul, the, the Bible, it doesn't see this ever being the intent of mankind. Instead, what this whole season, this is the whole point of everything, is that Jesus' community is a new humanity of full equality. Jesus' community is a new humanity of full equality. And then the question is, is that how we see the church? A group of people from all backgrounds of life, from all socioeconomic walks, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, who have all given up themselves for this new universal story, fully equal at the cross of what God did. Or is First Baptist just another way to get what you want? Is it just another way to feel important? Is it just another way of self-elevation? Is it just another way to feel like we have power? Because if that's the latter way of looking at this church, then we've ceased to be a church, and we've just become some sort of portalis country club that just like any other club will never accomplish what God's desire is for us. So in the way of application this morning, I don't, I don't really have all that much, to be honest with you. Maybe you're still living over here, and for the first time you're seeing that there is the opportunity for restoration. And you just need to take yourself, your life, your story, and submit it to the reality of the cross, and by faith take hold of what Jesus did for you. But maybe you're, you're over here living in this new humanity but you've fallen back into your old ways of fragmentation. You found reasons to divide yourself and to build your superiority complex and to feel like you're greater and they're less than or whatever that may be. And so maybe there's someone you've treated as lesser or inferior for no other reason than it just makes you feel important. And maybe if you want to see this church grow, maybe if we want to see this church grow into the community that God desires it to be, it begins with giving up ourselves. You give up yourself, I give up myself. It begins with giving up the things that we desire, our need to feel important. To give up everything for the sake of each other. And honestly, you're the only one that knows that. You're the only one that knows you, your heart, your, you and the spirit within you. But what if? What if this is the model we take on as a church? What if First Baptist becomes one of the few places in town where we truly see each other and everyone that walks through that door as fully equal? Might it change the way we treat one another? Might it change the way we see how this world functions? But here's the thing. That can only happen 
when we understand and submit to God's design. And that starts with you. That starts with me. You see, it does start personally, but it never takes us to privacy. The gospel starts personally, then instantly takes us to community. A community of new humanity where everything is in full equality. So maybe you just need to go to someone today and say, hey, I've not seen everything the way God sees it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Maybe you just need to have a prayer. God, help me to see the way, the world the way you see it. Let me see people as equal in dignity and value to me. And maybe it's just a prayer. God, help First Baptist to be a place where there is full equality. But whatever it is, we want to be this community in the way God intends. That he saved us from our own sin and created us in this new humanity to be equal in unity, holiness, and love. Father God, we thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you that we get the chance to live in this community. And I pray, even here and now, God, that you would help us to see the value of that. That we would be a church of full equality, made in your image of goodness and love. And God, that we would truly put this on display. That the rest of this town would not fail to see this church and see that there is something different about this community than anywhere else. God, let us be as you are. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, totally equal. Let us be totally equal in your creation. It's in Christ's name we pray.